Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us from your word and that by this you would hold us fast. Lord, we pray that you would convince us from the scriptures the truth that our sin will surely find us out, the truth that in spite of our sin, you bless, the truth that the only way to be reckoned righteous is by faith. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts to believe, to trust you, and to know that some sinful plan that we come up with is not the only way for us to make it through or even to see your promises brought to pass. So Lord, we pray that by the scriptures, you would give us a heart of wisdom this morning, that we would be both sobered by this passage and encouraged by this passage, and that we would be more ready to trust you. Perhaps, Lord, that you would expose to us some habitual, customary way that we are violating your holiness and defaming your name, Lord, and we pray that you would bring us to repentance and that you would renew our minds and give us courage and strength to overcome. Lord, we ask that you do these things and countless others by your word, through the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 20, and in Genesis 20, it's kind of like, here we go again. Uh, why, why is this happening again? What is Abraham thinking? If, if you've read through the book of Genesis, you know that on multiple occasions, he passed his wife off as his sister, and that happens in this chapter. We saw, we saw it already at the end of Genesis chapter 12, it happens again here in Genesis chapter 20, and then Isaac, his son, is going to do what his father did over in Genesis chapter 26. And um, this is instructive for us, and, and I want us to really focus on, on two big ideas as we think about this passage together. The first one is this, we will always regret our sin. You can write that down. You will always regret your sin. We will always regret our sin. In other words, there's not going to come a day when we're going to look back and we're going to be glad that we sinned in the way that we sin. There's not going to be a day when we're going to look back and we're going to think, you know, that sin that I committed was really honorable and noble and valiant and good and right and true. We're never going to think that way. We will always regret our sin. That's the first big idea that I think we'll see in Genesis chapter 20, and we'll really see that in the first part of the chapter, but, but in some ways throughout. And the second big idea is that in spite of our sin, God blesses his people. So those are our two big ideas. In spite of our sin, God blesses his people. We will always regret our sin, and in spite of it, God blesses us. As we approach Genesis chapter 20 this morning... Uh, what I would like to do is take a step back from this chapter and, and set it in context. And I think that, that this is a good thing for us to do because of the way that it will bring out um, thing, points that I think Moses is trying to make in, in, a, in a literary way from the way that he has structured the text. So I'm going to ask that the guys will put this slide up on the, on the board, and then we're going to walk through uh, the, the pieces of this um, chiastic structure that, that spans from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter uh, 22. And what, the way that I would encourage you to think about this is that you should think about this in terms of like a, um, an architecturally um, um, corresponding building. So we, we might think of it in terms of this room, which has these nice 
balancing halves, right? The room, the room matches on both sides. So there are as many pews over here as there are over there. There are as many pillars over here as there are over there. And the balcony over here is just like it is over there. And I would propose to you that Moses has done this really to center what's, what's in the middle of this structure, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And, and at the same time, he wants these corresponding elements to be mutually interpretive. So in our world, in the, in the way that we do books, we do things like chapter titles to tell you that you're at a new, a new section. And th that's not the way they did books in the ancient world. They didn't have these, you know, like in, in our Bible, they've printed a big number 20 by Genesis chapter 20. They didn't do that. Moses didn't put that number 20 in there. That was a later editor who added the chapter numbers really for our convenience. The way that Moses cued his readers that they were at the, at the beginning and end of a section was he presented similar material. So if you look back at chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, what you find there is a genealogy of Terah, the father of Abram. And then if you look over at the end of Genesis 22, what you find here is a genealogy in, 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 at Genesis 22, 20 through 24, there's a genealogy of, of um, Abraham's brother, Nahor. Um, and so, so you have these corresponding uh, genealogies that, that mark the beginning and the ending of this section. So they're like, they're like boundaries, these two genealogies are. And then, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on on. Uh, several of these pieces, but in, in 12, 1 through 9, this is where God first blesses Abraham and promises him land, seed, and blessing. And then if you look right before that genealogy that I was just talking about in 22, and we just read 22, uh, 15 and following, we find here, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, here come land, seed, and blessing. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring, that's seed, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate, that points to land, of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So land, seed, and blessing in 12, 1 through 9. And then in, in many ways, a lot of that material in 21 and 22 is about the, the realization of land, seed, and blessing because you have the birth of Isaac and then you have this interaction between uh, Abraham and the people of the land and then the Lord, of course, uh, blesses Abraham after he offers up Isaac. And then we come at, at 12, 10 through 20 and in chapter 20 itself to these two sister fib episodes. And, and they match one another. As we move through chapter 20, we will see that in, in both of these cases, Moses will use the very same language in both, in both episodes. As, as Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister, and then he's reproved for doing so by the pagan king. And then, uh, in spite of his sin, God restores his wife to him. Those are both really significant. And then... After the first one, in chapters 13 and 14, you have two chapters dealing with, with Lot. In chapter 13, Abraham uh, lets Lot choose which land he wants, and then in chapter 14, he rescues Lot. In chapter 18, the Lord comes to visit Abraham, and Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom. And then in chapter 19, Sot is, uh, Sot. Lot is rescued from Sodom when the Lord destroys Sodom. So there are these, you know, corresponding elements, balancing halves. And then in chapters 15, 16, and 17, it's as though God's covenant and Abraham's faith and Abraham's sin is all interwoven in these chapters. If you remember the beginning of chapter 15, um, Abraham says to the Lord, you promised me a descendant, and this guy Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. It's almost as though Abraham is saying, you haven't come through with your promise, so I'm going to make a suggestion about somebody that's going to inherit me, somebody who's going to inherit all, my, all that I possessed. How about if I put forward this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, because obviously you can't get the job done. 
and you remember what the Lord does. The Lord brings him outside. Having said, this man will not be your heir. He brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. This is how your offspring is going to be, like the stars of heaven. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted his faith to him as righteousness. And then after that, um, Abraham gets this prophecy that his descendants are going to be slaves in a land not their own in Egypt for 400 years. And then the Lord's going to bring them out. And, And... Again, in chapter 16, he sins. So I, I think it was not... He, when he put Eliezer of Damascus forward, I think he was not exactly operating in faith that God was going to give him an heir. And the Lord says there in Genesis 15, no, one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Well, then when he goes into Hagar, again, he's not operating in faith, is he? He's not believing. Well, in a way, uh, Ishmael's going to come from his own body, but not by means of his wife. So he takes Hagar, he sins again. And then in chapter 17, in spite of his sin, God promises him, having given him the covenant of circumcision, he promises him one who's going to come from Sarah. Isaac is going to be your heir. So all through these chapters, both in the very center of everything in chapters 15, 16, and 17, you have God entering into a covenant with this sinner. And God reckoning that sinner righteous, not because he's able to somehow rise above the sins of his culture, which he's clearly not doing, not because he's able to somehow bring himself up to snuff and attain some righteousness by his own effort, which he's clearly unable to do, as this episode shows us. He just keeps committing the same kinds of sins. No, because he believed. That's why he got reckoned righteous, because he believed. He believed the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And that brings us to this this second incident where he tells a fib, he tells a lie about his wife here in Genesis chapter 20. But uh, before we we dive into this material, let me me try to bring out the ways that this chapter... um, in, in terms of the way it's situated in relationship to the other chapters, the way that the, the placement of this chapter makes certain points. So if you want to look back at the end of chapter 17, in 17:16, the Lord says, I will bless her, Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And then if you, if you look down at 17, 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So the Lord is telling Abraham in Genesis 17, a year from now, Sarah's going to have a child. And then that gets repeated in 18. Look at 18.10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then again, In 18.14, is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And then look at 21, verses 1 and following. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. If there's ever a time that Abraham needs to be protecting his wife, if there's ever a time that he needs to be ensuring that no other man is going to have access to her in any way, it's in the time period that we read about right here before us, isn't it? In in this chapter, in, in Genesis chapter 20, it could be that by this time Sarah is already expecting Isaac. And and I would invite you to consider, to just ask yourself, in light of the way that that Abraham, let's think about what he's doing, okay? And we want to think about this rightly, I think. If you think about what he's doing repeatedly, I would say he's trying to do two things. Number one, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, he's trying to stay alive. But 
But number two, I think he's also trying to bring about the promises of God. And we see that when he puts Eliezer of Damascus forward, when he goes into Hagar. He's trying to make it so that what God has promised to him will be realized in his life. And I would invite you to consider, just ask yourself this question and take it before the Lord and let the Lord convict you in any way he needs to convict you. Are there ways that I am trying to accomplish God's purposes sinfully, in sinful ways? I mean, there there are all kinds of forms this could take. I could imagine a, a seminary student thinking to himself, well, God wants me to be a pastor, and so the thing for me to do is to get good grades on these assignments that I'm given, and then justifying cheating or saying that he did work that he didn't do. I could imagine people thinking, well, I've got to pay for seminary. And so then they do things that, are, that, that don't have integrity. Maybe that are illegal in order to get money to pay for seminary. Or I could imagine, you know, business people thinking, well, if I accumulate a lot of wealth, then I can give money to missions. And so they justify underhanded, perhaps illegal illicit business practices so that they can generate wealth so that they can advance the kingdom of God. I think this would be analogous to what Abraham's doing. The important thing is for me to stay alive. So, of course, I can't tell these people the truth about how, who Sarah is. And, and so, I, you know, there are all kinds of ways that this could happen. Maybe, maybe you think, well, the Lord is using me in his kingdom. The Lord is using me and... So I can't let people know what I'm really like or what I'm really struggling with. And so you're, you're keeping up a false front or you're not being honest. You're not confessing habitual sin that you're dealing with. It is never the case that the Lord will need man's lie to establish his truth. And we will never be proud of our sin. We will always regret the way that we sin. So let's look together here at, at uh, Genesis 20, and let's start reading in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And if you want to note this kind of thing, this is a very similar phrase to chapter 12, verse 9. Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, 12.9. So very similar Uh, statements in 12.9 and 21, you know, setting up the parallel between them. And then at the end of verse 1, he sojourned in Gerar. And um, perhaps you remember when we talked about Hagar, there are all these these interconnecting ties between these passages. Hagar, her name could be translated the sojourner. And now uh, what we have here is the word for he sojourned, which is uh, gar in Gerar. So if we were to like translate the word Gerar instead of transliterating it, in other words, we just put the words of that place name in English letters. If we were to translate it, we might call this place something like the sojourning place or, uh, you know, sojourn town or something like that. So he sojourned in sojourn town and there are ties back with previous narratives. Verse 2, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. Now, it's going to come out later in this passage that she really is biologically his sister. She's the child of his father, but not of his mother. But that's irrelevant, isn't it? The reason Abraham is is telling this lie is so that they won't kill him. The reason Abraham is saying she's my sister is not because the brother-sister relationship is the most prominent one in their life. She's clearly his wife. That's That's the issue He's doing this to deceive these people. He's doing this to try to keep himself alive. And he could justify this, couldn't he? He could say, well, I need to stay alive because God has promised me seed. And in response, I think if, if, we, were, if we were to have a, let's say we were Abraham's accountability partner. And this has happened before. And he's going into this new place, and we know what he's done before, and we were to confront him. Abraham, I know what you're about to do, or I know what you're going to be tempted to do. 
And, he, and let's say he were to say to us, well, don't you think I need to stay alive? Well, of course, Abraham, I want you to stay alive. But Abraham, think about what has happened in your life. You heard God's compelling voice in Genesis 12. He revealed himself to you. He, he I think we can say, this is using later, later terms from later scripture, he circumcised your heart, Abraham. He's renewed you. He made it where... Joshua 24, Abram worshipped other gods beyond the river. He made it where you knew those idols were false and you knew that he alone was the living and true God. Abraham, you saw the way that God delivered you in spite of your sin at the end of Genesis 12 when you did this with Pharaoh. You saw the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch when God made a covenant with you in Genesis 15. God has made these promises to you about Isaac. Abraham, you saw Sodom destroyed. You saw the smoke in Genesis 19 rising like the smoke of a kiln. Don't you think there's another way for you to stay alive? Don't you think even if you tell the truth, God can keep you alive? Don't you think God can protect you, Abraham? This is how we ought to counsel ourselves. Because we can, we can come up with the same list of of amazing things that the Lord has done for us. And then we can confront the sins that we're tempted by with this list of evidence that God will meet our needs. God will provide for us. I don't need to lie. I can trust the Lord. I don't need to steal. He will provide he has provided for me in the past. He will provide for me in the future. I don't need to lust. He, he will satisfy my desires. I don't need to slander. I can trust him to vindicate me. I think in, in the way that I've just sort of come up with, you know, five bullet points here of reasons that Abraham should trust God, I would encourage uh, each, each of us, all of us, to, to just survey your life. Just regularly, in, this is a great thing to do when... When, when you get discouraged, or even if you're just spend, spending time with the Lord in prayer, just look back over your life and recount all of God's mercy to you. Look at all of the ways that you have no business being blessed the way that you're blessed and celebrate God's mercy in your life. God is so enormously merciful to every one of us. And, and, you know, as Abraham repeats this sin of telling this lie, I, I'm confident that right now Abraham is in the presence of God rejoicing. And, and so, I, you know, I don't know what the relationship is going to be in the future between uh, our consciousness of our sins, but I'm confident that at some level we're going to know always I don't deserve to be here. If, if you really, if you, if you lined up all of my transgressions and then you ask, what does he deserve? The answer is going to be, he deserves God's wrath forever. It's not going to be, I deserve to be enjoying everlasting bliss in the all-satisfying, almighty, infinite glory of the living and true God. We're never going to think we deserve that. And that leads me to say, I don't think there was ever a time after this episode in the rest of his life or since then, since he died, that Abraham has been proud that he acted this way. So, you know, in Sunday school, J.O. has been going through these principles of communication, the first one of which is be honest. And, and as I was sitting here this morning, I thought, I wonder what that word honest, what, where does our English word honest come from? So I pulled out dictionary.com on my phone and I looked it up and it's actually related to a Latin term that, that is honor, basically. To be honest is to be honorable, etymologically speaking, in your speech. And we could say the converse is true, couldn't we? We could say to be dishonest, as Abraham here is here, is dishonorable. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And, you know, it's, it's understandable why Abraham does this. He does this because um, he's in a place that doesn't fear God. He's in a place that... Uh, when the king sees some attractive female, 
he thinks to himself, well, I could kill that guy and I could seize that woman for my wife. But he doesn't kill Abraham because Abraham's, according to the story, her brother. But there in verse 2, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But then here's God, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Now, I just want to pause and say, if God can intervene like this in spite of Abraham's sin, well, surely we could have trusted God to protect us if we told the truth. So Abimelech comes to, uh, sorry, God comes to Abimelech in the dream by night in verse 3, which is remarkable because uh, Numbers 12 the Lord says, when, when he's rebuking Aaron and Miriam in Numbers 12, the Lord says, when there is a prophet among you, I myself, the Lord, make myself known to him in a dream. So here's this, this pagan Philistine king, Abimelech, who has, he's just stolen this man's wife, seized this woman that he wants, and God treats him like a prophet of Israel. He comes to him in a dream. Who would have expected this? But God comes to him in a dream, and he says to him there in verse 3, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So the Lord intervenes, he reveals himself to Abimelech, and then Moses tells us, Now Abimelech had not approached her. This is very important, because Isaac's going to be born in the next chapter, Right? So this is really relevant information that Abimelech had not approached Sarah. So Abimelech says, Lord, and the ESV renders this, will you kill an innocent people? Uh, literally, the Hebrew says, will you kill a righteous nation? Will you kill a righteous nation? And it's really reminiscent of Abraham's intercession on behalf of Sodom. Will you, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham had prayed. And, and so it, it's very interesting how, how now Abimelech is almost like standing in Abraham's place. And, and we've seen this kind of thing before in Genesis. I think one of the points that Moses is making is that nobody should think that Abraham is somehow this qualitatively more righteous person than someone like Abimelech. That's not why God saved Abraham. God saved Abraham because he was merciful to Abraham. And God saved Abraham because Abraham believed, not because he was not the kind of guy who would, who would do the kinds of things that Abimelech has done. See chapter 16. Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not, verse 5, say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. And then Abimelech says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. That's a great phrase. All Abimelech means is, I didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife. I, I, it was an innocent mistake. I, I, didn't, I did not realize that they were married. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And then look at these amazing words at the end of verse 6. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. That's amazing. Here is this pagan Philistine king in the ancient Near East. I mean, this guy is a warlord. This is one of those kings who does whatever he wants to whomever he wants, however he wants, when he wants it. That's what, that's what drive this king, drives this king, his desires. And the Lord says, I kept you from sinning against me. Whatever power Abimelech has, he doesn't have any power to do anything that the Lord doesn't want him to do. And you know what this teaches us? This teaches us to pray the words of Matthew 6, 13, when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you remember the line that I have in view? Maybe it's come to your mind already. In the prayer that the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God has the power to keep us from sinning against him. God has that power. Do we trust him? Do we, do we pray those words? This, Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, this is great encouragement to pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, please don't lead me into temptation. Lord, deliver me from the evil that I'm tempted to do. He can do it. 
It was I, he tells Abimelech, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, the Lord tells Abimelech in verse 7, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now, I want to think about those words at a couple of different levels. Um, First, um, this is the Lord granting to Abraham an exalted status in his economy, isn't it? He's a prophet, the Lord tells Abimelech. Now, how's Abimelech going to respond to this? Some prophet, liar, spokesperson for the living God, not a truth teller. That's shameful, isn't it? We will, we will never be proud of our sin. But second, in what sense is Abraham a prophet? Well, again, the Lord doesn't choose prophets because of their thoroughgoing righteousness, because of their unapproachable purity, right? Think about Moses. Moses murdered an Egyptian. He killed him. Um, think about, and, and we could go through the other aspects of Moses' life. Think about David. David's a prophet of the Lord. And on and on like this, we could go. When, when the Lord calls Isaiah, you remember what Isaiah said? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The Lord does not choose people because of their righteousness. He chooses them, and then he counts them righteous. He, he makes them righteous. He reckons faith as righteous. So there's hope for all of us. Nobody should be sitting here thinking, well, I could never be a Christian. I could never follow God. I could never be a member of a church because I'm not good. Nobody should think I'm not good enough. We should all recognize the Lord's mercy to sinners. Paul writes to, to Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now then return the man's wife, for he's a prophet. In what sense is Abraham a prophet? Well, you remember um, Genesis 15, we talked about how the Lord, uh, he he revealed himself to Abraham in a dream. And maybe you remember the phrase that we talked about when it says in 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is very similar to many of those formulas that introduce uh, prophecies that we'll read later in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and, and, and so forth, other guys like that. Also, you remember in Genesis 18, the Lord asks himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And, and his answer is no. I'll, I'll reveal to him what I'm going down to Sodom to check out and what the outcome of that is going to be. So the Lord, the Lord is revealing himself in various ways to Abraham. And also, um, look at what is said here in verse 7, he is a prophet so that he will pray for you. And, and we've seen Abraham, haven't we, intercede on behalf of unbelieving nations, unbelieving Gentiles who are not part of his seed when he interceded for Sodom. And so part of, it mean, part of what it means to be a prophet, evidently, is to intercede for the wicked. And, and this is what we see Moses do repeatedly in, in Exodus through Deuteronomy. He intercedes with the Lord on behalf of, of others. And you know where this is fulfilled, don't you? The, the, the prophet like Moses. The intercessor who knows the fullness of God's future plan. What, what is said about Abraham here really is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Who... Whoever lives to intercede, who is even now, Romans 8, at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. So the Lord tells Abimelech, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. And, and that phrase ought to sound familiar to readers of Genesis, because it's the exact same phrase that we saw in Genesis 2.17, isn't it? In the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And it's, it, in Hebrew, it's, you know, dying you shall die. You and all who are yours. So before we go forward, let, let, me, just, let me just say a final, make a final set of statements about 
about our sins and about Abraham's sin. So what, what I'm about to say here applies to Abraham's sin and it applies to our sin. Our sins do not accord with what we know and believe. Abraham, Abraham, the Lord told Abraham, I'm going to give you a child by Sarah. So Abraham should believe the Lord's going to keep me along for as long as I'm needed to bring this child to Sarah. And then he should trust the Lord with his life. That's what he should do. And he sins in a way that doesn't accord with what he knows about the Lord and what he believes about the Lord. Same is true of our sin. Second, as I, as I said a moment ago, God doesn't need us to sin in order for his purposes to be realized. God does not need a cheating seminary student to get a prestigious degree in order to preach the gospel. God doesn't need that. God does not need stolen money to fund missions. God does not need that. God can accomplish his purposes without our sin. Third, our sins only create more difficulty for us. That's what they do. They don't thwart God's purposes. God blesses us in spite of them, but they sure make life more difficult for us. What, have you ever thought about, I wonder what the relationship was like between Abraham and Sarah once Abraham comes up with this awful plan? Here's what we're going to do, Sarah. Everywhere we go, we're going to, everywhere we go, we're going to jeopardize your safety so that I can be safe. Oh, well, thanks a lot. This makes me really inclined to trust you as my husband. That's just great. That's a wonderful plan. Thanks a lot. And then, and then, he keeps getting found out. How does that make him look? And so that, that's, that's my last of these four thoughts here. Our sins do not improve people's opinion of us. Our sins do not improve people's opinion of us. And I'm telling you these things because what I'm trying to do is give you ammunition, ammunition with which you can fight sin, with which you can stand against temptation. So, I mean, there are, there are wonderful people in this room. And I hope, that, I hope that as members of Kimberly Baptist Church, you have relationships with one another. And I hope that when you're tempted to sin, you think something like, if I do that, it is not going to improve Matt Pierce's opinion of me. If I do that, it is not going to make Peter Davies respect me. And I hope you use that to fight sin, to pursue honor and righteousness and nobility. I want to stand with my brothers in the pursuit of holiness. If I do this, it will not make Chris Davis trust me more. Use this ammunition to fight your sin. Verse 8. And now we kind of move into the second part. We're always going to regret our sin. God blesses his people in spite of their sin. Verse 8. Abimelech rose early in the morning. And again, this is like, if you look back at 1927, which for me is on the same, very same page, Abram went early in the morning. It's, it's very similar phrases in, in Hebrew. Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. So, so Abram's going to say, when, when he's asked, why did you do this? He's going to say, there was no fear of God in this place. Well, God can put the fear of God into that place. And that's what he's done. God put the fear of God into these guys. Verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And again, this should sound familiar, because not only is this exactly what Pharaoh said in chapter 12, 18, What have you done to us? Uh, it's also uh, what the Lord said to Eve after she sinned. What is this that you have done? And it's what the Lord said to, to, to Cain. What have you done? And now Abimelech, out of the mouths of babes and infants, sometimes out of the mouths of donkeys, sometimes out of the mouths of Philistine kings, the Lord rebukes his people. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. This does not Add to Abraham's honor to be rebuked in this way by Abimelech, king of the Philistines. But every word of it's true. He deserves this. 
Verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And I just want to just contrast this with, with some other statements in the Bible. You know, there's this great moment in 1 Samuel 30. I love, the, I love uh, this, this statement in 1 Samuel 30 where David and his men, they've come back to Ziklag, this town that, that where David and his men are dwelling, and Ziklag has been burned to the ground. And the, the women and the children and the livestock and all the wealth in Ziklag have been carried off captive. And the text tells us that David's men spoke of stoning him. And you know what it says right after that? It says David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then we could go through the Psalms and we could find all kinds of statements like this, you know. We could find statements like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And just contrast those kinds of things with what Abraham says here. There's no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. And, you know, if you want a recipe, a, a thought recipe for sin, there you go. The, it's not going to work. These people don't fear God. Bad things are going to happen. And then you're going to resort to sin. That's what you're going to do. So we have, to, we have to overwrite our thoughts. Our, we have to overwrite our thought patterns with new ways of thinking that say things like, well, I need to trust the Lord. I need to call on the Lord. I need to strengthen myself in the Lord. I need to rehearse these statements that the Lord makes. I mean, even Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want Besides, verse 12, and here he comes with his rationalization, justification. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So it makes it sound like this is what they usually did. We saw him do it in Genesis 12. We see Abraham do it here. Isaac's going to continue this practice in Genesis 26. It's a great opportunity for us to say, what, what things do I consider normal in my life that are really not honorable? What things, what, what practices, what ways of life am I allowing myself to make recourse to that I should really repudiate? I shouldn't tolerate this. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't go on in this culturally accepted way of acting. It doesn't please the Lord. It's not going to lead to my honor. I'm not going to be proud that I did this. And then here comes, I think, I think we have to look at what follows as God's blessing. God's blessing in spite of Abraham's sin. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So just as Pharaoh had done when he enriches Abraham, Abimelech now enriches Abraham. You know, there's this, this really remarkable statement in the Psalms where the psalmist prays, you can make the wrath of men praise you. And here... You can make the sin of Abraham result in him being enriched. That's what the Lord does. In spite of Abraham's sin, the Lord gives him more and gives him Sarah back. And then we continue, verse 15, Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. This is really reminiscent of Abraham saying to Lot, Look, the land is before you. Pick the part you want. And... and um, Abimelech seems to recognize, okay, that God that came to me in this dream, that's a God that I want to be on the right side of, and he's protecting that guy. And he tells me that guy his prophet, is his prophet. I think I'd like to have that guy near me. So, hey, Abraham, you take the best portion of my land. 
Because it would be better for me to have you there than not. It'd be better for you to for you to be in the best part of my land than for me to have the best part of part of my land and not be connected to this God of yours. And then verse 16, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a lot of money. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. It's like he's saying, look, I didn't touch you and I'm going to attest to the fact that, that you, have, you are totally and completely vindicated and, and, and there is nothing that has been inappropriate here. And then verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. So apparently God had closed the wombs of Abimelech's wife and all the women in his kingdom. Verse 18, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So let's just take stock of this and look at what the Lord does in spite of Abraham's sin. And, and there's great encouragement for us here uh, there's, you know, there, there, we're all going to sin. We are. We're going to, I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin. You're going to sin. Everybody's going to sin. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you should just blow this off. What I'm saying is you should always look to the Lord and trust that the Lord, number one, he can forgive sinners and he delights to show mercy. Number two, he uses sins that people commit for good. So I'm not telling you, go sin. Don't hear me say that. I'm not telling you, don't be sorry about your sin. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I am saying, the Lord, the Lord is not finished. And, and he can bring good out of bad stuff. So in spite of Abraham's sin, number one, God delivers Sarah. God preserves the woman through whom the seed of promise is going to come. He delivers her. He, he preserves her. He protects her. He keeps Abimelech from sinning. Number two, even though Abraham has blown it, God reveals himself to Abimelech. You know, I would say that if God can reveal himself to this pagan Philistine, even as Abraham sins, then God can reveal himself as, as we try to proclaim the gospel, even if we don't do it perfectly. Maybe you've, maybe you've felt this way. You're, you'd like to share the gospel with somebody. You think maybe you should share the gospel with somebody, but you think to yourself, what if, what if it would do more harm than good? Or what if I came across in an offensive way? Look, if God can reveal himself to Abimelech as Abraham is lying about Sarah, God can bring good things out of your attempts to share the gospel. So do it. Do it. Preach the gospel. Number three. Um, God mercifully, lovingly, kindly confronts Abraham with the truth. It's really a loving thing that God does when he, when he it's like he yanks our, our leash, so to speak, and he, and he shows us, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's evil. And I don't want you to keep doing this. It's, it's a loving, merciful thing. This is why Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Fourth, God enriches Abraham. God, we, we are seeing God carry through on his promise to bless Abraham. And, and then I already said this to some degree, but I'm going to say it again. God vindicates Sarah's purity. He, he, he vindicates her. And then, and then lastly... God ensures that Isaac will be born of Abraham and Sarah, which is to say, God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. And, and that promise is going to keep getting fulfilled until, until comes the man from Nazareth. And God keeps his promise when he willingly goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that God might be just and the justifier of the ungodly who trust him. Let's pray together. Father, if you were to keep a record of our sins, 
Who could stand? But Lord, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And Lord, I pray that if, if, if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't know you, that hasn't placed their whole faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would see how merciful you are and how loving and how forgiving and at the same time how righteous. And I pray, Lord, that they would be drawn to you and that they would know that, that they can trust you. And Lord, I pray that, that they would do so, that they would turn away from idols, they would turn away from their own desires for evil things or for self-gratification or to have it their way, Lord, and I pray that they would feel this overwhelming desire to walk with you, to know you, to be yours. And Father, for, for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would, through our time together in your word this morning, I pray that you have put, put bullets into our, into our gun that we might fight the battle, that we might put sin to death. And Lord, I pray that the sword of the Spirit in our hand would be sharpened and that the, the shield of faith would be gripped more tightly, not, not by our power, but by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, Lord. And I pray that the breastplate of righteousness would be tightened around us and that it would fit better and that we would be more equipped with the belt of truth and with feet shod with the gospel of peace. And Lord, I pray that the helmet of salvation would guard our heads and that you would indeed lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and that many people would come to know you through our faltering and sometimes failing efforts. Lord, we love you and we confess that there is none like you. And we pray that you would help us to continue to worship you. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.